Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Senate Leader Mitch McConnell forced a vote on the Green New Deal yesterday in the Senate. It lost 57 to 0 as all but four Democrats voted present. The President of the United States, Donald Trump, calls the Green New Deal the most preposterous thing and easy to beat. But while Republican leadership sees the new Green Green New Deal as a good way to mock and divide Democrats, the proposal polls pretty well. One poll cited in the New York Times today says that 46 percent of likely voters support the policy and 34 percent oppose it. Across the country, states and municipalities are already incorporating Green New Deal-like social justice and development components into real policies. For example, in Buffalo, a suburb that got uh, a coal plant closed, got a nice financial cushion from the New York uh, state officials. In California, funding from the state's cap-and-trade program goes to low-income communities disproportionately affected by climate change. And it's true in Illinois, too, where the Future Energy Jobs Act opened up training for jobs in low-income people in renewable energy fields. Now there's plans for more, and we're going to talk about that with James Gjack. Gjack is a Midwest energy analyst for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thanks for joining me, James. Thank you. And also with us is Howard Lerner from the Environmental Law Policy Institute. And uh, the Environmental Law Policy Institute just issued an assessment of the impacts on climate change in the Great Lakes and made headlines across the Midwest. Good to see you, Howard. Good to join you, Jerome. Well, what do you make of the way um, Republicans have gone about this? They've they've tried to force the issue, mock the issue, say that, uh, you know, the New Green Deal is going to take away people's airplanes and cheeseburgers, and they, they've just mocked the whole thing. Um, what do you think, Howard? Well, you know, come on. There, there's a certain amount of political polemics and theatrics. I mean, that's what we're seeing playing out in Washington right now, but there's also a serious piece of it. So for the first time now, we're moving beyond, is climate change real? Of course it is. That's what the climate scientists report we put out last week at the Environmental Law and Policy Center is all about. 18 leading Midwest and Canadian scientists saying, here's the science, here's the problem, here's what we need to do about it. But beyond that, you're seeing Republicans stepping up. Some of them are saying, we have to support innovation to help solve our climate change problems. Well, innovation is good. That's what's been happening in the solar energy world. $4 a watt 10 years ago, less than 40 cents a watt today. Moving innovation is an important step to helping solve our climate change problems. Policy action is needed, but we're seeing cracks. We're seeing Republicans talk about the need now for more clean energy research. That's good. The more that the Green New Deal debate leads to movement from is climate change real? Of course it is, To What are we going to do about it? How are we going to solve the problems now? That's positive. That's moving in the right direction. James, do you have some thoughts on this? Absolutely. And what's great about the Green New Deal is that the science is telling us that the need to act on climate change is very urgent, especially over the next 10 years. So what the Green New Deal discussion is doing is really driving the momentum and the conversation forward. And young people are at the core of, of the Green New Deal, and they're, they're demanding action from policymakers. So we have a lot of options to, to reduce emissions, but also do, do that in a way that addresses social inequities and um, 
And I, you know, I don't think most people know about the Future Energy Jobs Act and really what it did in the first place. We passed this thing a, a year and a half ago or something, and it did a lot. What, did, what kind of things did it do? So the Future Energy Jobs Act expanded energy efficiency and renewable energy, especially wind and especially solar in, in Illinois. And it did so in ways that involves all communities in Illinois, all uh, households and, and income levels. And so what we're doing now in, in, in Illinois is also um, pursuing a new bill called the Clean Energy Jobs Act. And that incorporates many Green New Deal uh, principles, such as um, sharing the benefit, making sure the benefits of clean energy are shared across all communities. Howard, you were involved in, in both of these things. Um, we are. T- tell us about the components here and what they're about. All right. So the Future Energy Jobs Act had three key components. One was to accelerate renewable energy in Illinois, especially solar energy. The second was uh, large subsidies for two of Exelon's nuclear plants to keep running. Otherwise, they were economically uncompetitive and they would have shut down. The third piece, as James mentioned, was to improve energy efficiency. Energy efficiency, best, fastest, cheapest solution to our climate change problems. Efficiency is working. The nuclear plant subsidies are in effect. The really interesting story is the pace at which solar energy is accelerating in Illinois. It was a tiny, tiny, tiny share of the power market in Illinois. Uh, Over the next four years, one year already having passed, 3,000 megawatts of solar. Let me put that in terms people understand. 3,000 megawatts of solar is over 10 million solar panels getting installed. And that's getting installed, as James points out, uh, everywhere from large solar fields in southern central Illinois to solar panels on community buildings, people's individual homes, roofs, uh, in all neighborhoods in Chicago. And that's creating a lot of jobs both in the city, in urban communities, and in the suburban and rural parts of the state. Good for jobs, good for economic growth, good for the environment. Legislation we're talking about now takes that and moves even further. Solar energy plus energy storage is a game changer for Illinois, the Midwest, and most of the country. We're kicking that off. We're talking with Howard Lerner from the Environmental Law Policy Institute and James Giednack. He is a Midwest energy analyst for the Union of Concerned Scientists. And we're talking about uh, clean energy and the Illinois and the, how Illinois has its own um, Green New Deal basically percolating along uh, quite nicely here. Um, so what the, the new – the new um, section here, the new proposals, is this what we didn't get the last time around in the Future Energy Jobs Act, or is this uh, something different? Uh, there seems to be um, some ambitious goals and, and things like that. Right. So the, the Clean Energy Jobs Act is building on the progress that, that we've already made and expanding energy efficiency, expanding solar power. And also adding some additional elements like energy, energy storage, as, as Howard mentioned, and um, also making sure that we're developing uh, things like workforce hubs in communities, um, job incubators, and adding those kind of programs. So, again, reflecting the principles of, of the Green New Deal, we are um, taking action to reduce carbon emissions and doing so in a way that is equitable and fair. 
So, Jerome, look what's going to happen in the Illinois legislature over the next two months. Lots of different groups, lots of different businesses, lots of different advocacy groups uh, have their uh, hands in the actions during the pot. Uh, Vistra, which owns the fleet of coal plants in central and southern Illinois, you know, old, highly polluting coal plants, they came in with legislation yesterday saying, give us a way to keep running these plants for another several years. We're going to shut down a couple. We want to run the rest. Give us some subsidies to keep running them and transition to solar energy. The transition to solar energy is good. Running those coal plants longer isn't so good. Um, environmental groups, other groups, we want to see accelerating renewable energy and energy efficiency, taking it even further. It should become a much bigger part of the power market. Help us clean up, create jobs and communities. Exelon, they have an interest too. They want to get more subsidies for their nuclear power plants that are otherwise economically uncompetitive. Commonwealth Edison has some things that it wants at the utility side. There are lots of parties and lots of actors. We're going to see over the next two months, you know, they say legislation is like sausage making. Uh, we're all going to have to reach some judgments on whether the, the meal that begins to emerge from negotiations in the legislature is one that, you know, not the perfect but the good. Is it something we all find to be a pretty good meal and can really move Illinois forward? Or does it need to percolate a little bit more? Let's see. You just got this um, report done, an assessment of the impacts on, of climate change on the Great Lakes. And it got a lot of attention. You had a front page story on the Tribune. There was uh, front page stories all across the Midwest about this. Uh, what do you think is galvanizing people about climate change in the Great Lakes? The Great Lakes is where we live, where we work, and where we play. It's not a partisan issue. It's not a bipartisan issue. I mean, it's something that all of us care about. It doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat or what race or gender you are, whether you live in the suburbs or the city. <clears throat> this is the core of why. It's where we live, we work, and play. So when it comes to the Great Lakes, there have been some terrific studies that have been done nationally, the National Climate Assessment, but it's been a while since the Union Concerned Scientists and others honed in on the Great Lakes. We brought together a team of 18 leading scientists, University of Illinois, Northwestern, Notre Dame, Purdue, University of Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, Minnesota, Wisconsin, to do a state of the science assessment of what's the impact of climate change on the Great Lakes. The picture is not pretty. This is sound science. It's strong science. And they've assessed everything from fisheries to wildlife to the impact on uh, toxic algae blooms to the impact on shorelines and wetlands. Bottom line, we need to step up and act and do something about it. These are highly respected scientists, credible spokespeople. They're our folks. They're not people from the coast. These are the leading scientists, and they're saying we have to act. The opportunity we have new governors throughout the Midwest and the Great Lakes, both Canadian premiers and Midwest governors. And what the Environmental Law and Policy Center has done is put together a policy solutions agenda. Here's what the governors can do. While the federal government and the Trump administration is stepping back, the Midwest governors need to step up with climate change solutions. They can do it. Good for jobs, good for economic growth, good for the environment, good for public health. A lot of attention, a lot of focus on this. You know, there's the old saying, 
you know, never screw up on a slow news day. Uh, maybe we hit a slow news day and maybe Jerome. It's just that when it comes to the Great Lakes and climate change, people are interested, front page, Detroit Free Press, Tribune, across the region. James, we just saw this cyclone bomb here hit, and people got flooded out all over the Midwest and Great Plains. And uh, this is the kind of thing that is going to have an impact on on all on our Great Lakes, on all our waterways. We're, we're seeing a lot of – we're just seeing too much water, and everybody's going to have to f- wrap their minds around what they want to do about it. Yeah, and as we talked about, the – the science is telling us that it, it is urgent. We have uh, we have about ten years. The next decade is really critical to take action to to mitigate climate change, and we are going to be seeing more and more effects uh, in in the Great Lakes region, as, as Howard pointed out. But the opportunity that we have is by reducing carbon emissions, we can do we can address many other issues as well. We've talked about uh, jobs and economics, but also public health. So um, reducing air pollution from coal-fired power plants has dramatic public health benefits in terms of respiratory and uh, heart disease reductions. Uh, so there's also a lot of opportunity at the same time we have this urgent need to act. Howard, the, the, the too much water issue, it's going to, it needs infrastructure attention. It does in a big way. Here, here's the basis of the science. We're going to have warmer temperatures in the Great Lakes. Overall, what that means is there's going to be more extreme weather, hotter summers, colder winters, more precipitation, some years less than others. Over time, relatively less water in the Great Lakes because hotter temperatures lead to more evaporation. But there are going to be years in which there are, you know, floods and burst storms and so forth. Well, there'll be a lot more water. So that means when you're dealing with water intake pipes for drinking water supplies, marinas, docks, piers, all the infrastructure along our shorelines of the Great Lakes, we're going to have summers where they are covered with water and not very useful. Last summer was a good example of that. And we're going to have some summers, too, where it's really dry, and you're going to have marinas and docks that are sort of stranded in sand. So we need to re-engineer and figure out ways to build more resilient shoreline infrastructure and community, greener infrastructure so we use water better, and figure out how along our shorelines we can adapt and adjust to the realities of more extreme the mean is going to be higher. The average will be hotter. Um, average will be relatively less water. But from year to year, the variations and the vacillations will be high. That's more stress on the system. Well, it's, um, it's, it's a lot to think about. And Do you think legislators are up for the task to respond, on responding to something like that? You know, look what's happening now in Congress. Every year for the last three years, President Trump has zeroed out or cut by 90% the funding for the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. And every year, Congress, when the Republicans controlled the House and the Senate, and now when it's split, Congress has said, no, put the money back in. And that's not been Republicans or Democrats. That's been legislators working together. Because as I said, the Great Lakes, that's where we live, work, and play. I think when you look to the governors, once they get through their first legislative session where they're dealing with budgets and staff hires and just... How do you put things together? 
You're seeing in Michigan Governor Whitmer declaring this to be the year of water. In Wisconsin, Governor Evers saying this is the year of water. They're going to come together at the Great Lakes Governors Association meetings and say, what can we do working together to protect the Great Lakes? What can we do on Asian carp? You see Governor Pritzker already stepping up on that. The governors have already stepped up and said no to the cutting the $300 million for the Great Lakes Restoration Agreement. I think we're going to see them getting proactive and moving forward, and that's important. When the Trump administration steps back with its war on the Great Lakes, we need to step up here with action. Howard Lerner is from the Environmental Law Policy Institute. You can check out their assessment of the impacts of climate change on the Great Lakes at their website, at the Environmental Law Policy Institute website. Thanks to James Geenack, and he is the Midwest Energy Analyst for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists working on the Clean Energy Jobs Act, now pending before the Illinois General Assembly. Yes, Howard. Jerome, you're great. Environmental Law and Policy Center, ELPC.org. Download the science report. Thank you for letting me join you today. You're great. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the Sunrise Movement, the organization that's helped uh, push the Green New Deal, and we'll talk with a couple of folks from the Sunrise Movement. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Senate Leader Mitch McConnell forced a vote on the Green New Deal yesterday. He had lost 57 to 0 as all but four Democrats voted present. Uh, One of the things that became rather uh, sensational about the debate and conversation was Mike Lee of Utah. He made some uh, interesting remarks on the floor of the Senate. When climate change hit home in Utah, when our own state was struck, not simply by a tornado, Mr. President, but by a tornado with sharks in it. These images are from the indispensable documentary film, Sharknado 4. Governor Herbert bravely fought the animal off with the tennis racket that he keeps by his desk precisely for occasions such as this. So let's be really clear, Mr. President. Climate change is no joke, but the Green New Deal is a joke. That's Mike Lee of Utah yesterday on the floor of the Senate talking about the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal has gotten most of its juice from the Sunrise Movement, and we're going to talk with two of the people who are involved with the Sunrise Movement. With me in the studio is Paul Campion. He's a student at Loyola University and is hub coordinator for Sunrise Chicago. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you, Jerome. Glad to be here. On the line with us is uh, Stephen O'Hanlon, and he is co-founder and communications director for the Sunrise Movement. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, What did you make of what happened yesterday in the Senate there, Stephen, with uh, Mike Lee and mocking the whole thing? And uh, President Trump obviously has said it's preposterous and an easy thing to beat. Uh, How do you get the the reaction killing the Green New Deal? Yeah, so I think the the big story yesterday is that Mitch McConnell uh, bet big. He thought that by bringing the Green New Deal resolution 
to a vote. He could divide Democrats and slow the momentum for the Green New Deal. But uh, the story now is that the Republican Party has no uh, no strategy <laughs> around climate change. What we saw from from uh, Senator Lee and others on the floor was just a, a, a totally incoherent and honestly uh, really shameful response to to the Green New Deal. Um, he went on to say that the solution to climate change was for people to settle down and get married and have more babies. Um, and the, it was really clear that, that that they're not taking this seriously and they're uh, it seems like they're treating it like a game. And I, I know for me and for millions of other people in my generation, it's not a game. It's our futures on the line. And we're looking out onto a, what could be a really scary future for us if we don't implement policies like the Green New Deal to move to 100% clean and renewable energy. Paul, uh, what was your reaction to Mike Lee and what happened in the Senate? Well, as we can clearly see, um, Republicans have no plan and for uh, young people like myself who are scared and terrified about this impending mer- emergency of the climate crisis, um, we need bold solutions like the Green New Deal um, because our generation wants to live, plain and simple. And just last night, I received a, a call from Henry Redcloud, uh, a leader in the Lakota Sioux tribe in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. And he had tears as he was describing the floodwaters that had destroyed uh, the Red Cloud Renewable Energy Center that he runs out there. Um, this crisis and this emergency is impacting real people, taking lives and threatening the very well-being of our world. And that's why we need the Green New Deal. And we need to ask uh, the leaders in Congress who refuse to take this seriously to step aside. Um, Stephen, a lot of people don't know where the Sunrise Movement came from. It's a rather new thing. Could you give us some background and tell people about how the Sunrise Movement coalesced? Sure. So we started in April of 2017. A group of us, uh, mostly in our early 20s, uh, came together, um, had been doing other other work around climate change and policy um, and, and, and for the past few years. And uh, we started Sunrise because we felt like uh, the so-called adults in the room, the politicians in Washington and state capitals across the country, weren't taking this seriously and weren't actually proposing solutions in line with what science demands and didn't have the courage, it seemed, to stand up to the oil and gas lobbyists and CEOs who have bankrolled our politics for too long. So that's why we started Sunrise, and we spent um, the first year and a half uh, campaigning to get politicians to reject oil and gas money. Um, We got 1,300 candidates to sign the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge. And uh, since November, we've been campaigning around the Green New Deal, which is the only policy on the table that... Uh, actually takes action on climate change in line with what the latest UN science demands, which says that we have less than 12 years now to transform our economy if we're going to avert really catastrophic climate change. Um, how, how did the Green New Deal take shape? In, there's, if people go and read the Green New Deal, there's a lot of uh, rhetoric about inequality and a lot of emphasis on labor unions and things that uh, probably – you know, even old-timey environmentalists don't usually equate as together with climate change. How did you put that all together? Well, the Green New Deal is really a, a, a big-picture look at what it's going to need, what's going to need to take in order to do this transition. So we need a, a 
whole mobilization of our country and economy, unlike anything we've seen since World War II. That's going to mean we're going to need to train millions of people to start building the renewable energy economy of the future. We're going to need to create millions of good jobs. Um, and we also are going to, it's going to be a time of transition for, for people across the country. And we want to ensure that, that people who uh, have relied on, um, on fossil fuels um, for, for their livelihoods get the support um, that, they, that they need to, to move forward um, so we can have a just transition for people. And uh, honestly, it's a, the, the, the policies like the jobs guarantee and the Green New Deal um, like the programs to retrofit buildings are some of the most popular proposals among ordinary people. Um, and we can't just tackle this with one, one policy alone. We, we need a whole-scale solution. I'm talking with Stephen O'Hanlon. He is co-founder and communication director for the Sunrise Movement, and Paul Campion, student at Loyola University and hub coordinator for Sunrise Chicago. Paul, you were going to say something? Yes, and I just wanted to add that here in Chicago, black and brown communities on Chicago's south and west side have been fighting the disproportionate negative burdens of the fossil fuel industry for years. Um, And so the promise and the vision of the Green New Deal is that these communities that have borne the vast majority of these burdens deserve to be at to have justice and to bear um, the benefits of the clean energy economy. And we're seeing that in the Clean Energy Jobs Act as well as in the Green New Deal. It seems like whenever I hear Sunrise people talk, um, they always talk about someone they know that has had a pro- that is having a problem right now with climate change. It's not like something that's going to happen in 15 years. It's, there's an emphasis on now. Is that a, is that a deliberate strategy, Stephen? Definitely. So for, for, for too long, climate change has, uh, has felt to people like this far off thing that is going to impact, you know, their kids or their kids' kids. But our generation is already feeling the impacts and we're seeing how the world is transforming before our eyes. And it's only going to get worse if we don't take dramatic action. The, the UN report said that by 2050, we could have 150 million climate refugees around the world. To put that in perspective, there were about a million refugees um, if coming out of Syria that caused, caused a major, major crisis a couple of years ago. So the, the effects of climate change are, are, are from the wildfires to the, to the hurricanes. Um, we're, we're seeing record-breaking, record-breaking weather happening all across the country and world. And, and we want to emphasize that and connect the dots between uh, the extreme weather that's happening and then the politicians who aren't taking responsibility for this crisis. On our website at wbez.org slash worldview, we got a question on our online call out. And one was from Worldview listener Chris Morton. He just installed solar panels on his house. He appreciates the government incentives that nudged him to buy it. But Chris was wondering how climate activists can fight against the undemocratic authoritarian streak of the current government to find big solutions. Um, he he he. I guess he's worried about the battle there that you're you're facing against uh, the fossil fuel interests. Um, do you have some thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, across the country, um, we've seen fossil fuel CEOs and billionaires buy out and consolidate power um, right now in the in Washington. And so um, part of the vision of the Green New Deal is bringing back and restoring democracy um, and fighting and electing uh, politicians who will fight for the health and well-being of our communities and be truly representative. 
Now, I was reading, Stephen, on the website about town halls that uh, the Sunrise Movement is doing. Uh, can you explain what's going on with the town halls? Sure. So in starting in about four weeks, we're going to be launching the Road to a Green New Deal tour, where we're going to have tours, speaking tour stops and town halls all across the country uh, to share with people, people of all walks of life about what the Green New Deal could mean for their communities, how it would create good jobs, uh, protect the environment, ensure that everyone has access to clean air and clean water um, and a safe home. And uh, we have uh, over 100 town halls scheduled across the country. And, and uh, if people want to sign up to host a town hall or attend an event near them, they can do that on our website at sunrisemovement.org slash tour. And I would like to add that on May 18th, we'll be having a town hall here in Chicago. And Chicago area listeners can go to sunrisemovement.org slash Chicago um, to sign up and join us on May 18th. I know, one of the things I that- I noticed there were a couple in April too, uh, one in Aurora, one in the southwest side. Yes, multiple. Um, and so some will be kind of smaller scale, organized in local neighborhoods. Uh, and the May 18th will be the kind of bigger uh, citywide Chicago town hall. And um, so is the strategy with these town halls to to do the thing that our listener, Chris Morton, uh, thinks is so challenging? If there are undemocratic authoritarian people out there, uh, is this the people power that you think is going to make a difference? Exactly, Jerome. Um, so one of the things that we like to talk about in the Sunrise Movement is that changing the world is a fulfilling and joyful process, and we let that show. Um, so coming together in the Chicago Hub, I've made beautiful relationships and connections, and we're building community around a positive vision for a world that we all want to fight for. And the Green New Deal Town Hall is about bringing that vision and that hope to every community across this country, including Chicago. Um, do you want to add something to that, Stephen? No, that's that's great. <laughs> um, now, as after these town uh, town halls, is there? Um, how do you see the push for the Green New Deal taking shape? It's something that you know it obviously faces obstacles in the Senate right now, and that it just seems. Um, are we still a, a couple election cycles away from a Green New Deal? Do you have some feelings about that, Stephen? Well, we don't have any illusions of passing the Green New Deal while Donald Trump is president. He's made it clear that he doesn't want to take action on climate change. Um, so we're looking forward past past the 2020 election. But the, the critical thing right now is to build the public's and political support for the Green New Deal. So getting uh, more and more people involved in the movement, um, sharing about the vision of the Green New Deal like we're doing at the town hall so that we can keep building on the impressive support. Um, some poll, latest polls have shown that over 80% of Americans support the Green New Deal, um, and that goes across party lines. And then the other aspect of what we're focusing on is uh, making sure that in 2020, we elect a Congress and a president that are ready to prioritize the Green New Deal, and that we're going to, we're already getting out to, uh, to events of the presidential candidates in the early primary states to hold their feet to the fire. And in the coming months and ahead of 2020, we're going to be at events all across the country, pressuring politicians to uh, show that they have the courage to stand up for our generation and back the Green New Deal. 
And locally, um, Representative Quigley, Representative Schakowsky, Garcia, and Davis have already come out co-sponsoring the Green New Deal. And we uh, thank them and have celebrated their leadership on this issue. We will be continuing to put pressure on our senators, Senator Durbin and Senator Duckworth, who we've been meeting with um, over the past couple weeks, um, as well as other local Chicago area representatives uh, to move them to be um, champions for the Green New Deal. Um, Stephen, what's been the greatest accomplishment so far? Well, uh, we, we've transformed the, the Green New Deal from a niche policy issue to uh, the talk of the nation. And in the latest Iowa poll, it's the most popular policy proposal among likely caucus goers. Uh, so that's huge. And uh, we're seeing this week the, that climate change is at the center of American politics, maybe for the first time in our lives. And that that's a huge, and it wouldn't it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for tens of thousands of people across the country organizing in, in their local chapters, like what's happening in Chicago, to uh, put this on the map for politicians. What do you think um, was so different about the Sunrise Movement that I mean, people have been talking about a carbon tax for ages, and that never flew. Uh, what what do you th- what is different about this proposal that makes it? Uh, something that people are getting excited about, Paul. So one thing that hey, I, makes me excited about the Green New Deal is that it offers a vision for the future that I really want and that I believe in and want to fight for. Um, and I think the Green New Deal offers um, solutions that can bring a huge coalition um, across racial, economic, environmental justice movements and labor movements to all come together and build the movement that we need to um, bring forward the solutions that we want. Paul Campion is a student at Loyola University Chicago and is a hub coordinator for Sunrise Chicago. Stephen O'Hanlon is co-founder and communications director for the Sunrise Movement. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the Green New Deal and your projects in the future. Good luck. Thank you, Jerome. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about housing. It's a component of the Green New Deal, but my next guest will say it could be more. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about the Green New Deal today, and we mentioned earlier that there is a line about affordable housing in the Green New Deal, but my next guest thinks there could be a lot more. Daniel Aldana-Cohen is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania who works on the intersection of climate change, inequality, and the built environment. He had an article in the Jacobian called A Green New Deal for Housing, and it talked about uh, the ambitions that uh, he thinks housing has. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jerome. Um, Explain your your idea here about housing, because if we are making a transformational uh, move here with the Green New Deal, uh, it does seem like housing could be a huge component. Um, explain your strategy. 
Sure. Thanks a lot. Um, that's absolutely right. The Green New Deal resolution that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez put forward does have a line about a housing you know, guarantee, but it's not fleshed out. And what I propose in Jacobin and building on the work of a lot of organizations that have been working on this is a Green New Deal for housing, which entails 10 million public high quality homes built over 10 years. Um, and there are basically, you know, five kind of important reasons why I think this is necessary. And I'll just list them quickly and, and we can get into the details. But, you know, first, exploding housing costs have made housing as big an issue for people economically as under unemployment. Um, you know, uh, over um, 12 million people spend over half their income on rent, half of renter households. Um, face uh, extreme rent burdens, and, and the numbers go on. So there's an extreme amount of inequality, and a lot of that drives racial inequality in this country as well. Uh, second, millions of people will need new homes just because of displacement from climate change. You know, Over 13 million people projected to be displaced by sea level rise alone uh, over the course of the century. That, that, um, is, that is a wild statistic I don't think most people appreciate right there. 13 million people uh, being displaced by the end of the century. Um, I mean, I mean, but we're seeing it now. We saw this uh, great cyclone bomb come down in the Midwest, and plenty of people were displaced right there. That's right, and you know, th- this is a, a serious issue. The the study that I mentioned is only talking about sea level rise. The cyclone, um, you know, I just saw in the news was threatening contamination of one million wells uh, of people in rural areas in the Midwest. So when we talk about sea level rise, we're talking about people in places like South Florida, but if you start to think about uh, the kinds of flooding dangers you can have inland, um, you know, with rivers and, and, and so on, and other forms of extreme weather, heat, wildfires, uh, drought, you're really looking probably at, you know, over 20 million people moving around the country as a result of climate damages. And, you know, that, of course, raises the question, where are people going to live? And the private housing sector is not doing anything remotely uh, sufficient to address that need. And the current forms of housing subsidy that the government has don't work either. Only one-fifth of the people eligible for federal housing subsidy even get them. So a huge build-out of affordable, high-quality, you know, mixed-income public housing that really sets a new standard for community living in this country, I think, is, is going to be a necessary component of the Green New Deal. All right. If uh, Can you describe what a model of that is, because I think when people hear mixed income public housing, there's a, there, nobody wants it in their neighborhood and that kind of thing goes on. Public housing doesn't have a great reputation right now in the United States. That's right. You know, I think it's important to defend public housing's legacy in the United States. And in many cases, the the failures of public housing have to do with stigmatization, failure to provide enough money for, for maintenance of homes, and, and we could go on. But it's also true that the U.S. model, and Chicago is a classic example of this, the U.S. model of public housing is, stands out in the world as being really about massive, massive structures. It has a lot of people with a pretty restricted income, you know, low-income category. Um, and often these places become concentrated areas of poverty and often extremely racialized. Um, if you look to Europe, and in particular Vienna, you have a very different model. In Vienna right now, one-third of the housing is public. One-third is cooperative. One-third is private. And, and my proposal, the, you know, the public housing could, could be managed in a cooperative fashion, absolutely. Um, and what the way that those that model works is that you essentially have building by building competitions where designers bid. They want to, to get the best architects involved. Um, you have uh, 
rents set that include the maintenance of the building, and then you have a separate stream to subsidize those who can't pay those full rents. Um, and because you have such high quality construction, and because you're building in, in the Viennese model, housing in every single neighborhood in the city, so there's no zip code that doesn't have public housing in it, this is, becomes a very desirable place to live. And it, it is simply, a, if you want to have a really fancy home, you go to the private market. And unless you want a really fancy home, you simply choose public or cooperative housing based on the you know, the availability that you find most attractive to you. And the quality of life is extraordinary. The carbon emissions are extremely low. The quality of public planning is fantastic. In Vienna, they also pay a euro a day for public transit. And the carbon emissions are through the floor because essentially people have the ability to live well, to spend time in parks, to go out for drinks in the afternoon, to get around the city practically for free. And this is really the result of very high quality, very deliberate public planning. And that is a model of kind of density that's not too high, of social mix that is very attractive uh, that we could have in the United States. It's simply a matter of directing public energy and public resources toward it. I'm talking with Daniel Aldana-Cohen from the University of Pennsylvania, and we're discussing some of the ideas in his article in The Jacobin, A Green New Deal for Housing. And so your proposal is how many, uh, how many housing units should we aim for? What should we be doing? So this, this is a big proposal. I, I propose 1 million units per year, basically, for 10 years. Now, obviously, there would be a slow ramp up because you don't have the capacity to build that much right away. And you would be building with nonprofit builders. It's not like HUD would be going in with its own hard hats in, in all places. But the U.S. right now builds about 1.5 million private homes. It's probably not enough. In a place like California, the governor has proposed you know, 4 million homes in four years, something to that effect. Um, but I am absolutely proposing that we displace a certain amount of the private sector construction with public construction. Um, now, I do want to point out this idea may seem outlandish to some readers, again, if we aren't familiar with the European experience. But even pretty centrist organizations like the Center for American Progress, basically a think tank associated with the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party, they are now proposing one million units of public housing uh, in five years, which is not as many. They want to propose to build it only on public land. So I think you could sort of say that the sort of center center left is now moving toward a public option idea about housing we're using a medicare you know healthcare analogy and what i'm proposing is something more like i wouldn't say medicare for all you wouldn't displace all private housing but something much more like that in other words a very very substantial public outlay of housing that would compete with the private market um, and i think there are very good reasons to do that we provide better higher quality housing in places near transit where people want to live you mentioned uh, Governor Newsom in California having this gigantic uh, push for new housing. He's going to do it with tax credits, things like that. The, the, um, that's the way the U.S. tends to handle these things is to inspire things with market ideas. That's right. I mean, you know, we've had decades of market-based housing policies in the United States, and the result is a gigantic foreclosure crisis. And, you know, millions of people who don't have homes that they can afford to live in. And another result of this broken system is that increasingly the lowest carbon way to live is in a dense urban area uh, or connect or living near rail in a, in a suburb or, or a town. And increasingly those places are, are being gentrified and only the wealthy are actually able to afford to live in a walkable neighborhood. And poor people and people of color are displaced into, into suburbs where they're not able to create low carbon infrastructure for themselves. Now, the tax credit system doesn't really help with this. The number of units per dollar invested keeps going down. The system is essentially broken. 
the volume's not there. It's a bureaucratic nightmare, these public-private partnerships. Um, and California can take two years just to line up the tax credits to start on a on an affordable housing project that has been approved by planners. So what I'm proposing here is something far more efficient and effective, which is simply to directly provide cash grants to nonprofit builders to build the housing right away and to meet people's needs. And, you know, the New Deal was so successful because this is the kind of thing that happened. Um, you had public agencies addressing social needs under pressure from social forces, from unions, from community groups, from groups of retired people, um, and working together in a decentralized experimental fashion, solving problems place by place. And that's that's very much the spirit of this housing proposal. It's not downloading from Washington a template onto localities. It's providing funds for bottom-up construction of the affordable housing that people need in those particular places, in rural areas and in urban areas. You know, in the United States, it seems like we're really fixed on um – you know, neighborhoods that are really good and neighborhoods that are really bad. And, uh, you know, there are – it's hard to imagine that there are places in the world where there is successful mixed income. But these, these places do exist on the planet and there are ways to get there. That's absolutely right. You know, and, and it's pretty amazing. Um, I grew up in Toronto actually and it's quite quite stunning to come to the United States. But even Canada is nowhere near – the most advanced cities in Europe when it comes to public housing. And I think that if you go back and read about the New Deal, it's, it's quite astonishing. I mean, the the ideas about public life uh, at that time. In 1933, the New York Times uh, magazine wrote, you know, the era of leisure is here to stay. The 40-hour work week means that the idea of wasting your time, the busy bee working all night, all day, has ended. It's now a time for public recreation. We have to have housing and parks and leisure spaces all over the country for people to take advantage of. And you you, you built a lot of that, and you had the same movement in Europe. And the the difference is that in the U.S. since the 1970s, market fundamentalists have completely rolled back that vision and that way of life. Um, And and this did not happen in Europe. In Europe, that kind of vision has continued to expand. So there are big problems in Europe. Of course, it's not perfect. The U.S., the New Deal, was an extremely racist sort of housing policy but there is an idea from the 1930s about what it means to live in a really high-quality built environment that I think has been lost in the U.S., but that is very much possible to recover. Uh, when you read the Green New Deal and you, you saw – I mean there's really just one line about um, equitable housing in there. Uh, where, how do you blow that up? Is it, how do you get that larger in the, in the component and the argument? Yeah, you know um, – Buildings consume 39% of the energy in the United States. So I do think that when the people behind the Green New Deal policy start to dig into the details, what I would argue to them is that a Green New Deal for housing is not one more kind of chapter to add on to a very long book, but it's simply specifying what, what would you do if you had a jobs guarantee. The Green New Deal says very clearly we want to make targeted investments in low-income and racialized communities. Um, Well, what would those investments consist of? If you want to decarbonize the building stock, if you want to have a more rational relationship between transportation and housing, then public housing is one way to do that. So I I want to be clear. I don't think this is about adding yet one more massive project on top of the Green New Deal, but this is a way of fleshing out uh, or adding flesh to the skeleton that's already there. And the other point I would make is, look, the Green New Deal – is going to be extremely difficult to, to pass. There are a lot of fossil fuel interests and other interests that will oppose it. And we really need, um, as they said at the People's Climate March years ago, we need everybody 
And the housing movements are very powerful movements in cities. They're often very tightly connected to the labor movement, which would stand to benefit enormously from this kind of housing construction. So I think when we think about what are the urban and even rural political coalitions that could form to support a Green New Deal, including a housing guarantee in a meaningful way, really helps to flesh out the political coalition that it's going to take to beat back the fossil fuel industry, to beat back, beat back some of the enemies of the Green New Deal and the Republican Party who are simply not going to accept anything. So you need a broad coalition. And for a broad coalition, you have to offer immediate benefits to people who, who need things. Do you have um, places you could point listeners to for, for more information and some different kinds of thinking about uh, housing? Um, that's a great question. You know, my proposal is based on a fantastic proposal called Social Housing in the United States by the People's Policy Project. So I would absolutely Google the People's Policy Project. They have a number of very interesting proposals along these lines. Um, Jacobin has run some fantastic articles about Vienna, separate from my own. Um, and so if one Googles Jacobin uh, Red Vienna, which is the period when housing expanded the most, they could look there. And I would just also encourage people to look. So some, this is you know, some might have a tangent, but not quite. Um, New Jersey is actually the state in the country that has done the most to get affordable housing built in suburban towns and communities, even though there has often been resistance. And if one Googles Mount Moral Doctrine, you can learn about how in New Jersey, leftist lawyers, racial justice groups, labor unions, progressive politicians banded together to say every single community uh, needs to get affordable housing um, for working class people, for people of color. And I think when we look at the examples like that, we see Political organizing does work. You can have a better deal for housing for ordinary people, and this can help to decarbonize the country. Daniel Aldana Cohen is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. He works on the intersection of climate change, inequality, and the built environment. You can read his article in The Jacobin, a, new De- a Green New Deal for Housing. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the important issue of housing and climate change. Thanks for covering the Green New Deal, Jerome. We're always taking questions on the tough issues we cover on the show, like we did today. Thanks to Bill Brock and Chris Morton for weighing in on the Green New Deal. Feel free to visit wbez.org slash worldview anytime to submit your questions to be answered on future shows. And keep an eye out for call-outs on future topics. Join our Facebook group called WBEZ Worldview Community to keep up to date with us as and your fellow listeners as well. So tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk a bit about uh, the U.K. and the Brexit negotiations. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview.